Hey friends, it's the 24th edition of The Plunge. Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and just give us that coveted five-star iTunes rating. We have a tantalizing tornado of stories for you today. In court, Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, admitted his connection to blustering state TV personality, Sean Hannity. In gossip news, women of a certain age are horny for brain pill salesman Alex Jones and for the newest member of Trump's legal team, the decaying husk, Rudy Giuliani. In Terrible Takes, we wade through nauseating send-offs to Paul Ryan and appraise the self-worshipping book tour of former FBI director James Comey. In the Pop Culture Corner, we discuss the acclaimed Teddy Perkins episode of this season of Atlanta, Dennis Miller's fall from the Weekend Update desk to Breitbart News, and arguably the most underrated Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. In story time, I'll discuss the way I was let go from a job under peculiar circumstances. Stick around. It's your plunge. the plunge and breaking fucking news as we record this billy bush is dead no just kidding it's barbara bush ah got my hopes up there (laughs) oh i don't know too too much about barbara bush but she was married to a bad guy she fucked one bush and then created a few more for us to deal with (laughs) Please clap. (laughs) So, okay, more importantly, Michael Cohen and Sean Hannity, the chaos surrounding these, like, Long Island caricatures. Yes. What can we even say? So, if you haven't been plugged into this, which I completely understand if you haven't been, because it's just this, like, storm of, like, stupidity and, like... It's a waste of your time and ours. So we have Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, who is just this utter dipshit. Like, he seems <laughs> to be completely incompetent. Sam has even found he went to a rather curious law school. Okay, so Michael Cohen, who obviously is Trump's personal attorney, who was recently raided at his hotel, fucking went to the stupidest law school in the world. He went to... Cooley Law School. So I've never heard of this. Is Cooley part of a bigger, you know, it's like from a, another university or is it, I mean, where is this? What is this school? I think it's just a scam. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've only ever heard of it in terms of it being basically a scam. It's been accredited since the American Bar Association since the mid 1970s, but that's been challenged a bunch of times. Uh, Cohen graduated in 91. The Cooley Law School has extremely lax admission standards. They accepted almost 86% of their applicants in 2016. <laughs> they have a median entering class that year had a median GPA of 2.9 and the median LSAT nice. score of 141, which is the bottom 15th percentile of test takers. 
this is absolutely who should be representing the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, baby. Uh, so either way, uh, Cohen is a, probably like the most successful graduate of Cooley Law School. Uh, less than 30% of their graduates find full-time non-temp work as attorneys within nine months of graduation. Either way, it just goes to – like I've – I knew about Cooley Law School beforehand because there have been I had read about it once or twice, but the fact that Michael Cohen, who is like this living fucking real life Barry Zucker corn from Arrested Development, the fact that he fucking went there is just genius. It's perfect. So he was rated over all of Trump's uh, Russia connection shit that Mueller is trying to assess, and the Stormy Daniels threat on her uh baby and herself which did you see that sketch they released of the guy who threatened stormy daniels uh, no oh my god okay so everyone's saying this and it looks fucking like tom brady <laughs> <laughs> imagine if tom brady was one of trump's goons he just like plants a huge wet kiss on his kid's lips and then goes over to threaten stormy daniels Ugh. So Cohen paid off Stormy Daniels $130,000 to keep her quiet around the election. We've gone over this. And he was showing up in court on Monday, and the judge demanded to know who this mysterious anonymous third client of his was. And Cohen apparently said, some of the effect of... I don't want to embarrass him because he's a public figure. And then the judge said, embarrassment is not enough of a reason to withhold this. Yeah, baby. That's that, that's that Cooley Law School degree right there, motherfuckers. The embarrassment clause of the Constitution. <laughs> and to audible gasps in the courtroom, he said, Sean Hannity. <laughs> <laughs> what can we say about Sean Hannity? He is the most partisan as state tv fucking has dinner with trump all the time probably communicates with him every night after his show hannity sought legal advice from cohen hannity's now saying that this does not matter and he apparently is fully fully endorsed by fox news yeah, Fox News just came out with a statement today fucking ex basically saying that he has their full support. They said they were surprised to hear that Michael Cohen <laughs> represents Hannity, which I'm a little surprised to hear, too, because like we said earlier, we all know that Michael Cohen is only involved with Trump because Trump refuses to pay anybody. So he has to have these like weird lackeys around who must accept whatever form of payment Trump actually provides to them. But Sean Hannity's got money. Like, he could afford a lawyer. Why, how was he, like, what is he hanging out with Trump? And he's like, oh, I need a good attorney. You got any ideas? And Trump was like, I've got the just the guy. And it doesn't make sense. He claims that he sought advice from Cohen without retaining him. It's really weird. And uh, I think Hannity definitely fucked some buddy. <laughs> <laughs> And I say body because it could be anything. <laughs> Alive or dead. Ugh, God, yeah. I don't know what Hannity gets up into. But luckily, Hannity's got somebody in his corner. Anthony Scaramucci, fucking dope icon, king and queen, fucking came out and, on Twitter and said, 
Sean, we're all clients of Michael Cohen now. That includes everyone on the left. All of us. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, uh, new leader of the Communist Party of the United States, Anthony Scaramucci, signing off, I guess. And uh, I guess in other right-wing news, we've got some hot goss, some hot gossip for y'all. This is romance news from sources across the web. We talked last episode about Rudolph Giuliani, the... The <laughs> America's mayor, as they called him, the king of divorce, uh, was going through his newest divorce, and page six in the New York Post <laughs> put up this gross article that like thirsty women are lining up to date Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> yes, this is amazing. This is a fucking like just utterly baseless gossip or like column by cindy adams out of nowhere claiming that women are lining up to date rudy giuliani about to, to be consciously uncoupled rudy giuliani is coming off to upper east side sex kittens like catnip <laughs> well, they're okay, but also is it, at him <laughs> Are they kittens? I thought they were supposed to be older. Like, is it like kids? Like, who is this? Who's the, who are these kittens of which you speak? We'll get to that. Sidling, if not actually frontling in his direction. It seems power <laughs> is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Pussycats in their 40s. So, okay. So, like, maybe really late 40s are setting saucers of milk one meowed, she's, quote, always loved Rudy, unquote, and, quote, no matter what, he's still Rudy, quote, oh. whatever that means. <laughs> Who are these quotes attributed to? This is such bullshit. These are people stuck in 9-11, seriously. Uh, it's just inexplicable what this, like, three-sentence column was attempting to accomplish, and no matter what, he's still Rudy. It makes me think of, like, that quote that leads off the Wiener documentary that's, like, a, a, sometimes the most grievous insult against a man is his own name or something like that. <laughs> I mean, no matter what, yeah, he is still Rudy. He's fucking gross. <laughs> so women are just horny for Giuliani. Let's play that little clip of him shouting, like, this is America! <laughs> It's time to make America safe again. It's time to make America one again. One America! What happened? What happened to? What happened to? There's no black America. There's no white America. There is just America! What happened to it? Where did it go? How was it flown away? <laughs> okay. So other horny right-wingers this week include Alex Jones. So outside the Trump Hotel, a reporter named Gabby Morangello posted on Twitter, 
spotted outside Trump Hotel, Alex Jones making out with an unidentified blonde woman while her child rests next to them in a stroller. <laughs> it's the dad of the year, Alex Jones, for y'all. <laughs> you know, he is a child defender. Pizzagate <laughs> is certainly... Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think child defender is a good way to refer to the Sandy Hook truther guy, but <laughs> either way, this is a good kind of refuting of that article we read about how conservatives have a hard time dating. Uh, anyone out there, you know, the right wing wants you to know that they fuck. And they fuck hard and they take brain pills to do it. <laughs> Well, this was a real fucking bummer, huh? Former GOP House Speaker John Boehner, the, like, smoking, like... Like, we knew that he was a big cigarette man, but apparently he's getting into the marijuana business. Which is more logical than not, I guess, if he was a cigarette guy. But now he's going to be serving on the board of Acreage Holdings, which is a... Cannabis Corporation operating across 11 states. 420, which... baby. <laughs> yeah, far out, man. <laughs> Are you going to buy, like, Boehner blunts? Oh, God. This is just, uh, it, it is funny how that's, that old, like, s fucking stoner idea that, like, you can't legalize weed or else the corporations will get it, man. Like, that's kind of weirdly true. It's literally not countercultural. It's, no. It's, there's nothing countercultural about weed. And, I mean, yeah, it, it, this is... Weed might not be cool anymore. I, I'm saying this as, like, I'm hours away from leaving for Denver, <laughs> which I can only imagine is going to be, like, just one huge fucking mushroom cloud of, like, marijuana by the time <laughs> I land there. But this fucking... Um, <laughs> this acreage holdings thing, I, it makes me think, I'm like, when does it... When does, like, the old idea, like, oh, you know, my opinion on this has evolved. Like, when does that become opportunism? And I think here we have a perfect example. Yeah, in 1999, he wrote a letter saying, uh, to an Ohio constituent saying, I am unalterably opposed to the legalization of marijuana or any other FDA Schedule One drug. I remain concerned that legalization will result in increased abuses of drugs of all varieties including alcohol but now he has completely changed winds on that now he is talking about how great it is for veterans who to you know to self-treat ptsd chronic pain and other ailments basically parroting the arguments that the marijuana legalization side has been you know screaming loudly into the void for decades at this point and it goes to show, like, you could say, okay, maybe it's, you know, it's been 20 years since 1999 when he said that thing. But also, it seems like there's more legitimate money now to be made off of marijuana than there was 20 years ago. He worked for administrations who locked up people. And, I, I mean, think about the amount yeah. of people who went to jail for weed for 10 years for, uh, like, a dime bag. Well, but now, I mean, he's just going to do the same thing, but from like a an intellectual property angle you know what i'm saying like he's gonna be 
like trying to lock up uh, weed bootleggers or fucking that something like that for not selling weed along the lines that he and his corporation have lobbied for, basically. 420, baby. Yeah, blaze it. Well, speaking of other things that are making weed uncool again, we've got the fact that Trump, our baked fucking president, has decided that he all of a sudden doesn't care about enforcing federal marijuana laws in states where it is legal, ending a standoff over some nominees to the DOJ. But he apparently like made this stupid deal with Senator Cory Gardner from Colorado saying that and Gardner claimed that he had like secured a promise from Trump that the Department of Justice would no longer uh, enforce the Cole memo, which is something that allows it to enforce federal marijuana laws at the federal level. Marijuana is illegal, but it allows them to force that in state in states where it is legal. Gardner said that uh, President Trump has assured me that he will support a federalism based legislative solution to fix this state's rights issue once and for all because of these commitments i have informed the administration that i'll be lifting my remaining holds on department of justice nominees so there you go a little quid quid pro quo for you yes it's great to hear a movement from trump in any way towards pro drug considering He's a big fan of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. How do you send his name out? (laughs) Yeah, it's Duterte. Uh, That's true. That was pretty harrowing. I mean, Duterte's war on drugs has been about as disastrous as our own, I'd say. (laughs) Oh, hey, I just got a push alert from the New York Times that says Mike Pompeo, the new CIA director, is said to have met with North Korea's Kim Jong-un in recent weeks to set up a meeting with donald trump <laughs> hey baby peace in our time so i mean damn we've got plenty of we've got enough violence at home to deal with all right let's just go into this story this this one teacher went above and beyond to make sure that his gun was you know just out a parkland teacher left his gun in a bathroom stall in a men's room at the deerfield peach pier it was a glock nine millimeter and this was the stoneman doug douglas teacher sean simpson who said he'd be willing to arm himself while on duty (laughs) and the glock was already in the hands of a drunk homeless man who had picked (laughs) it up and fired by the time the chemistry teacher realized he'd left his gun behind Okay, so he didn't intentionally leave it there like a Godfather situation, but <laughs> the bullet was fired by a drunken homeless man who hit yeah. a wall. And this Simpson guy thinks he's fucking responsible enough to... <laughs> well, only if, if only there had been a good guy with a gun to shoot the drunken homeless man. <laughs> you gotta think about these things sometimes, Dan. And uh, another galaxy brain idea to deal with this uh, epidemic of gun violence in the United States is the school district in Pennsylvania that wants to, that has already armed teachers with mini baseball bats in the wake of the, of the Stoneman Douglas shooting. Now, mini bats, I remember these things from 
Yankee games or maybe even like minor league baseball games as a kid, you would get these little little bats, right? And they're toys. These are not weapons. <laughs> well, Dan, uh, my idea is actually to arm kids with those little like toy wooden guns that shoot like a little cork out and go like. Or just uh, why don't we do like the you know the Walking Dead like Negan? He's got that like spiked uh, bat. You know, just go all out. If there's a shooter, you want to be able to uh, really gut them. The first time I heard a man in the South, a white man, of course, say the N-word in earnest was when he was telling me a story about beating up people who he claims attempted to jump him with a mini bat. So already off the bat, once I hear mini bat, it doesn't sound good to me. (laughs) I bet there's one way you could stop a shooter with a mini bat, and that's if you just happened to throw it at the right angle where it, like, knocked the gun away. Like, you'd have to do bat versus gun. Yeah, well, you can write the heroic screenplay of, like, the lone teacher who has to, like, take out, you know, the the fucking invading force of school shooters with a mini bat. But I would like to move on to some terrible takes. Okay, this first terrible take is something I've seen a lot. Specifically, the Hollywood Reporter has shared a lot of these articles in the last week about sort of what's up with Charlie Rose. When is Louis C.K. going to make his comeback? And, like, it just seems like a weird avenue of journalism to pursue. And that sort of speculation just seems like kind of odd to me and vanity fair published a story literally matt lauer is planning his comeback this is the man with the rape office (laughs) that sounds so fucking ominous the the headline is matt lauer is planning his comeback the disgrace today star was seen out in Manhattan Monday night. Like he sounds like a fucking creature, undead creature because he is a fucking soulless monster. And it's like, why, why does our culture need to have this sort of narrative where the guy who, has no discernible skills who, who, you know, does morning TV, just (laughs) needs another chance after committing rape. You didn't see people... You didn't see people in the aftermath of Brian Williams like, oh, we really needed Brian Williams on this fucking TV. Well, yeah, except he, uh, he did pretty... He's doing pretty well now at 11 p.m. on MSNBC. But... Wow. Um... Mario Batali, apparently, also uh, was in the New York Times. uh, They said he was eyeing his second act. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think this is? Why do you think... Why do you think there is... Why do you think they have to write about the comeback preemptively? Like, it it just seems like an odd avenue to take up a where are they now, like... Lauer was fired on November 29th. It's not that long ago. Like, Oh, my God. Yeah, they have... 
uh, a picture on this. The the it, it's just Matt Lauer from literally like fucking months ago, from November twenty seventh, like two days before he was fired. So this picture is supposed to like maybe maybe you'd use a more recent picture, or but you can't because he's a disgraced fucking sex offender. Like th- so, you're just writing articles about nothing is what I the sense I get from this. Should we say allegedly? <laughs> Valid. Pretend we said allegedly before everything. <laughs> and in all previous episodes of this show. I don't know. I uh, think the Hollywood Reporter particularly has this sort of uh, blasé attitude about uh, Me Too. As evidenced by this story about Charlie Rose that they had where it was basically <laughs> like, look at this sad old man who had such a bright career and is such a genius. And it's like, now he just wanders around Long Island and hopes nobody recognizes him. And it's like, you hurt his feelings. You think about what you've done. I talked to a friend who worked at CBS and he said that Charlie Rose's uh, creepiness was a widely open secret. Yeah, you told me the when I heard the Mario Batali thing, I had heard that behind in you know cooking circles beforehand. So I really wasn't surprised at all. It seems that because I would say that there's been a drop off in the quantity of these stories because mm. for a while it was literally every day. Maybe people are trying to just uh, you know stay on the beat in any way they can yeah i suppose but i guess the pen the pendulum pendulum is a swinging and one of one sign of that is that we are finally rid of a fucking scourge paul ryan has claimed he will not seek re-election thank the fucking gods i mean what can you say about the legacy of paul ryan i believe that he did everything he came uh, to Washington to do. That's true. He might be doing like a mission accomplished sort of bow out right now. But why would you I mean, say that is? I think his primary belief stems from what? That taxes are too complicated and he wants tax cuts and redistribution of wealth and gutting of uh, social welfare. Yeah, he's just the king of the college libertarians. He read some Ayn Rand or whatever it is they read and found that it spoke to him and he wanted to execute that his sicko worldview on this country and dismantle what was left of its social safety net. And, I mean, some of the things he's presided over, I mean, we saw that $1.4 trillion tax cut to mostly wealthy people and corporations. And we've overseen just his staunch opposition to everything from, you know, Obamacare, which is his true bugaboo, to, you know, any other basics like spending. He's come fucking within inches of Social Security and shit. I mean... I'm so glad to see him go, but apparently not everyone is. There are some really heinous people getting ratioed out there on the Twitter grams or whatever. I mean, I don't I don't know who this guy is. Jonathan Allen. John he... Allen DC, baby. He's a power no, I have no idea who he is. National political reporter at NBC News Digital. I've read yeah. a lot of snarky stuff about Paul Ryan. But he ran honestly. 
feeding the drum of his belief in tax cuts and a complete reimagination of the social safety net as something much smaller. He didn't hide. He put his ideas on paper and articulated them. There's honor in that. <laughs> Rob Delaney just posted a picture of Shrek under it. That is more. That has five times more favorites than the status. Yeah, and this that tweet I think I last saw had almost ten times as many replies on it as it had likes so as we went into the you know the lore of the ratio in our last episode it's not good but i mean you said before you're like i don't know who this guy is he probably doesn't reach that many people but he's got thirty-seven thousand followers i mean he's got like three times as many followers as like plenty of our favorite you know twitter people that we think are a lot more qualified to talk about some shit like this or a lot more interesting to hear from yeah, how could you possibly use the word honor and Paul Ryan in the same sentence? He's like a disgusting coward. He's a total weasel. Another weasel and uh, daughter of a literal fucking Contra from Nicaragua, Ana Navarro, said, Ryan's a good, compassionate man, but allowed Trump to define him. Did him much harm. Painful to watch. Paul chose to stay silent and inert when faced with actions uh, yeah, that went inert. against his <laughs> the, that went against his principles in order to be a team player. He'll now be free to find his voice again if he wants. Oh, oh my god, just 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 like I hope that the Kim Jong-un meeting goes sour and we're all just chemically just blasted away. We already launched missiles on Syria. World War III is around the corner, so that's on the horizon. Chuck Schumer called Paul Ryan a good man who was always true to his word. <laughs> there's, there's like so many of these like w- w- pseudo liberals out there are have this weird attitude of like you're free now. There's no more Trump to ruin you, and it's like, what? but you think that Paul, Trump ruined Paul Ryan? Like Paul Ryan's been shit since before Trump had any realistic political aspirations. <laughs> Come on. Not to mention, other than Trump being like uh, an awkward, dista- like just just distasteful idiot, Paul Ryan is like lockstep with him in. <laughs> like most of his politics yeah that's true and you pulled out this politico article that was called the tragedy of paul ryan (laughs) (laughs) like once again he's a tragedy from the start like he's a total trash person down to his shitty gym pictures of him like curling like 30 pounds to like his disgusting haircut that has remained unchanged and is like razor sharp chin you know is is there stuff you want to pull out from this article it tries to take painstaking steps to distinguish between like the identity like white identity politics that trump used versus like the fiscal like (laughs) ideas of ryan like as if that's not all fucking you know sort of singularly I don't know. I didn't read all this article, admittedly, because it was pretty long and honestly fucking stupid. But I don't like the way these, like, obituary-style takes whenever some just person like this 
who ultimately, like, what did Paul Ryan do in the last two years? Like, since Trump was elected, like, what has he done? Yeah, what has he done that's not, like, a massive just, like, hollowing out of entitlements or, you know, anything that he, any kind of government spending that goes to, like, actual people that he can trip up. It It's not worth uh, fucking eulogizing over Paul Ryan or trying to find the good in him. And one of the things that you can see about this, if you really think that Paul Ryan's so far from that white identity politics that Trump does, the leading Republican running for Paul Ryan's seat is Paul Nalen, a white nationalist who we have covered on this show before. He's one of these people who doesn't like Meghan Markle, and he's just opposed to any level of, like, multiculturalism whatsoever. And uh, far more interesting to me is the Democrat, who a lot of people are saying Paul Ryan was getting kind of scared of, and that might have been the reason he was planning to drop out. No, I've seen talk of this guy, uh, Randy Bryce, and he goes on Twitter at Ironstash, and what's his deal? Ironstash is just like a he's a real deal iron worker who's interested in like old school fucking union and like benefits like politics. He's a pro, a pro single health, single payer healthcare, and he's just a like a solid dude who's got a strong story that's pretty irrefutable. He's also um. He did some, I think, pro bono, like, or, or some pro bono work in Latin America that I can't remember. But either way, he has, like, really compelling ads and had a really compelling presence as this, as, like, a real deal iron worker who says things like, let's trade places, Paul Ryan. You can come work the iron and I'll go to D.C. And, um... He, he has a great interview in Rolling Stone that I attached in the show notes for people who are more interested in him. And uh, he's just providing a compelling alternative working class narrative to not just Paul Ryan, these budget hawks, but also to Trump and the white nationalists. He's like someone who's providing a coherent kind of more left wing progressive like ideology into that kind of like working class community and i think it's going to be really compelling as we move forward and i hope he succeeds until i hear anything bad about him but he's definitely going to be better than paul nalen at any rate well i guess it's the big story right now we have to fucking talk about it i tortured myself watching the entire 40 fucking minute 2020 interview with George Stephanopoulos and James Comey. You watched it? I watched it. It was on Hulu. I thought you said you listened to it. Well, I was like work. It was while at work. I was working and. Man, I can't even read these things. Like it was on my, I have two screens. (laughs) You got to have double the content to keep up for the show. That's what Dan does for the, uh, for the listeners. Yeah, I have many, many monitors like five therapists to deal with all the online bullshit that Dan has to witness on a daily fucking basis for you cretins. So James Comey coming in hot. This book he just put out is his refuting his telling of what happened in his time (laughs) leading up to and during the Trump administration 
and Comey's really this is like one of the biggest backpats I've ever seen. Like, what do you make of this? This is the worst kind of showboating. This is the first, he's the first guy who's like, a, who actually worked for Trump to get his book out on time. Cause you know, sadly Scaramucci's book doesn't come out until September. I've, I like almost cried laughing when I saw the title. What's Scaramucci's book called? Scaramucci's book is called Trump, the Blue Collar President. (laughs) (laughs) Scaramucci, fucking multimillionaire, expert on the working class. But that's only slightly dumber than the Sean Spicer book that's going to come out. I think it's just called, like, The Briefing. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, Sean Spicer. About, um... (laughs) I mean, I want a whole expose on how much gum he eats a day. Like, I want a full 500-page dossier. Yeah, I want to hear about how long he cried when they wouldn't let him, like, meet the Pope. (laughs) Even though he begged. He's, like, an actual Catholic. He's, like, into it. But either way, uh, people think that James Comey's book is going to have some new bombshells because it's like the first book written by an actual Trump guy. James Comey was obviously fired by Trump because he was, you know, too interested in the truth and he was ready to bring Trump to his knees and uh, Trump had to get rid of him. But also we know that Trump, uh, Comey is like the worst kind of opportunist as we saw with with this decision to release that bullshit about the Clinton emails and like reopen it because of like Anthony Weiner, like he, you know, yeah. And, uh, Stephanopoulos kind of pushed him on that, but I didn't feel like he went far enough. Like the hypocrisy with which Comey disclosed the fact that Hillary's, that these new emails were going to be investigated only to two days before the election say, oh, actually there's nothing there. Um, <laughs> when at the time they'd already re- the FBI had received the steel dossier. So they were already probing into Trump's connections with the Russians, like his campaign connections with the Russians. So like Comey's full of shit. And yet, You know, like every other uh, anti-Trump, never-Trump, right-wing schmuck, he's propped up as some fucking hero. But we've seen, uh, you pointed out, even in Vox and other liberal publications, they've kind of called Comey out on it. Yeah, I think that Vox and Washington Post specifically called him out. And I think with them, they're pretty savvy and they realize this is a pretty naked cash grab here. I mean, actually, the Vo- the Vox one quoted The Intercept talking about how James Comey had set up that sting with that, which we've mentioned on the show before. Or he didn't do it personally, but the, the FBI set up a sting and wound up giving a like a mentally or intellectually disabled homeless man $40 to go buy like machetes and knives and stage a terrorist attack. And then they swooped in to stop him and claimed that they had stopped a terrorist attack. But um, we'll go more into his personal shittiness. This cash grab is ridiculous. Book tour tickets scalping at $850 in certain places. If you're rich enough and dumb enough to pay money like that to go see this fucking guy 
then you're a fucking loser because if you have that much money, you should have like insider. <laughs> like, yeah, the face like, value of the tickets alone, though, is $95. I mean, that was at the uh, New Yorker radio hour in New York City. He's on this relentless fucking media tour right now, as evidenced by that Stephanopoulos interview that you mentioned. And uh, it kind of comes to the, the heinousness of the like pro Comey liberal crowd is kind of as exemplified in the fact that the New York Times exhumed like Michiko Kakutani, their like book reviewer, to just deliver the most putrid like uh, fucking review of this sludge. Was that the same one where Comey was like, my favorite character in literature is Atticus Finch? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, we've heard a lot about who Comey idolizes because apparently Comey is our idol, so we would want to hear about his idols. One of which is LeBron James. Like he's like, oh, that guy always tried his best, and that's what I did. I was like, come fucking on, you have nothing in common with this guy other than the fact that you're a lurch. He's at least tall with a purpose. You have to be such a fucking dumbass to not see that this is all just trying to sell this fucking book. A higher loyalty available now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the title is really nauseating. It's a literally called loyalty. <laughs> yeah, a higher loyalty. So the implication of that title, I think, right, is before you, before you am... launch into it, Dan. Before you launch into it, let me finish the title name. It's the title is a higher loyalty, and then it has a subtitle: um, truth, lies, and leadership. <laughs> It sounds like a terrible high school essay. But the insidious thing about this is it's exonerating him for his fuck-ups by justifying it, saying, I am beholden to a higher loyalty than any individual or any, like, I am loyal to this vague, like, concept of the law that adheres to whatever I say it is. Yes. So specifically, he always talks about in that Stephanopoulos interview, he said, I worry that the norms at the center of this country, we can fight as Americans about guns or taxes or immigration. And we always have. But what we have in common is a set of norms. Most importantly, the truth. Like he's obsessed with the truth. It doesn't matter if people are getting shot in the streets because there's a bajillion guns out there or that like immigration is used to deprive certain people of their like liberty or legal status. Like, hey, I know I know a way he's pro-truth, uh, torture. I read a lot about that in the uh, amazing Taibi piece in the Rolling Stone that dropped today. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, right at the top, he pulls a quote that highlights what we said before, the hypocrisy of the reopening of Hillary Clinton's email investigation. It is, this is from the James Comey book. It is entirely possible that because I was making decisions in an environment where Hillary Clinton was sure to be the next president, my concern about making her an illegitimate president by concealing the restarted investigation bore greater weight than it would have if the election appeared closer or if Donald Trump were ahead in the polls. <sighs> so that just like, it's he, he, not. He's literally admitting that he's an opportunist. Right. He's saying that he thought Hillary was going to win. So he wanted to do this public thing 
in order to not make her lose, but to what? Op- like, make his optics look good? Yeah, basically. Uh, and Taibi later in the piece goes into how Komi tries to come off as, like, an opponent of torture. And he claims that he was held back from doing more because the CIA didn't, like, tell him everything. And, I mean, he go- basically, like, goes on to posit taibi says like so comey was able to stay quiet about torture keeping it trapped inside but he couldn't keep the secret like the details of an email investigation he himself doubted would lead anywhere important (laughs) it doesn't add up it just goes to show yeah he's definitely not shown himself in the past to be any kind of like hero or obsessed with like the unvarnished truth like he claims he is in his fucking writings and his actions show that so One way to always arm yourself with the truth is to take part in our literacy campaign ongoing to, you know, read good books and talk about them. So do you want to go first, Dan, or you want me to go? I'll talk about this book I've been reading now. I had mentioned in a previous week I've been digging true crime in the last couple months, so I've just gotten through Patton Oswalt's his uh, late wife uh, Michelle McNamara wrote this amazing book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark and it is the tale of this killer in California in the 70s and 80s who was never caught and this killer was a horrific uh, also murderer rapist and this book is terrifying like utterly terrifying if you've ever heard noises in your house and feared like a break-in or something (laughs) i mean it's not it's the, the least funny thing ever it's like the guy would wake couples specifically targeted couples and he committed over 40 rapes it's theorized uh sort of to humiliate the husband great and he would case the uh neighborhoods and it is a book about this specific unsolved cold case but it is also about why being like a true crime writer interested uh michelle mcnamara and why she had a certain reverence for these brilliant serial killers like these you know it's almost like this like you know, you see a car crash, like that idea, like the almost like uh, yeah. disgusting beauty, not like beauty, but just like she, there's a certain almost like yeah, you... begrudging respect you have to have for like the uh, guy who eludes you. Yeah. And in general, I think it's uh, interesting to speak to that kind of obsession that certain people have with true crime or hearing about murders, even if it scares them. It's like you're still, I guess, tantalized and like kind of you know, intrigued, even if it's repulsive, obviously. Sort of, like you said, in the way of a car crash. Yes. And a lot of true crime writing, from what I understand, is very dry and sort of uh, lacks... It's very data-heavy, you know, DNA. It's not, like, talking about, like, sperm and shit is not, like, sexy, you know? It's pretty numbers-based and... uh, you know, so, but but in this book, she writes about the Golden State Killer, or as he was known at that time, the East Area Rapist. Uh, 
she writes about it with such like um you know like she'll go into this like sort of really technical side of things and then she'll just kind of like just pull you out and like have a sort of like really grabbing uh line so i just i really love the writing in this book uh it was compiled posthumously she passed away um over a year ago and it was a tragic Patton oswalter uh husband uh definitely promoted this book a lot and that's how i heard about it and it's definitely an amazing read it's called i'll be gone in the dark and it's it's a really like uh tough uh tough read like you know obviously if you're squeamish not uh not one to go near but it's a story that is going to be adapted into an hbo documentary series that was just announced i guess the ultimate hope is that this uh killer and rapist will be found (laughs) someday one would hope and uh, it would be cool if her work uh, helped in that. But uh, what's your book for this so my week? My book is Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. It has been made into a movie with Natalie Portman, but I have not seen it, and it sounds very boring and bad. So I'm going to talk about the book. The story follows an anonymous protagonist on the 12th expedition to the mysterious area x which is this seemingly like locationless desolate landscape that is devoid of human life it was created under like mysterious circumstances and here life seems to evolve differently and the land has been kind of like terraformed and reformed so many times that there are like multiple climates and different landscapes developed one on top of one another it's there's a lot of like amazing uh, description of the kind of imagery and i believe well, either way, uh, I'll go on. The pri- protagonist is a biologist whose husband went to Area X on the 11th journey, the previous one, and returned without much of any memory of what occurred there. Um, then he mysteriously dies along with other members of the expedition from cancer. And this happens before the events of the book. Um, she then so she joins the next expedition and she's on a team with a surveyor, a psychologist, and an anthropologist, and they're they're all nameless. And she wants to find answers about her husband and satisfy also kind of her burning curiosity as like a naturalist about Area X and especially its wildlife. And uh, the descriptions of like animals are really cool. There's, you know, an underground living tower with endless words written in bioluminescent fungus on the walls. Uh, There's dolphins with human eyes, other weird life forms that kind of end up colonizing the adventurers and they cloud their attempts to kind of make sense of the nature that they're viewing, which is already kind of behind comprehension. And so I really, similar to like what I said about Binti last week, I really enjoyed the boundless visual imagination in this book, which is kind of mediated by the feeling that human senses are under unable to comprehend the way life and nature work in area X uh, due to its natural components. And also due to the, our, you know, the, our faulty means of perception. Also technology seems to be uh, like not useful in area X. Um, it seems like the events of the novel take place in the farther future, but or in the near future, but we're not really sure. Um, and it, there's also an, a shady governmental, you know, agency behind a lot of this called the Southern Reach. So that adds a third layer of kind of confusion amongst the characters. 
uh, and you kind of have to just work with the narrator who is admittedly unreliable. Uh, all the a explanations of Area X tend to lead to more questions. You can never be sure about the conclusions you like land on. And it's just really fascinating as uh, from like a lot of the themes that it comes in. And the narrative structure is really kind of Reservoir Dogs-esque. You know, a lot of things go wrong quickly. Hopefully there, these aren't too many spoilers. Um, but Jeff Vandermeer is an interesting writer. He was involved with like the weird fiction literary scene in the 2000s. And uh, Area X is apparently inspired by his hiking through the St. Mark's National Wildlife Reserve in northwestern Florida. And, uh, yeah, it was a really great read. And it's also pretty fast. Um, it's hard to find it. I keep uh, – it's, it's checked out from, like, every library in my area. Uh, and I hate reading ebooks, But I definitely need to finish this trilogy. It's good stuff. Yeah, speaking of uh, eerie and intense – we're going to talk about the episode of Atlanta that came out a couple weeks ago, Teddy Perkins. I hadn't seen this season at all, and Sam basically said, no, you, we are definitely talking about Teddy Perkins on the show. Yeah. So I tuned into this episode without seeing any of the other ones this season, and it was so great. <laughs> yeah, so the Teddy Perkins episode, episode six. Now, Atlanta doesn't follow, like, a too, like, uh, strict of a narrative structure across the season's arc. So we're not really giving away spoilers. But, and we we all know the show has always been good. But I think a lot of people noticed that Teddy Perkins was definitely a step beyond. It's like a mini horror movie within the show. I mean, it was hard not to think of Get Out in the opening, specifically the Confederate hat bit in yes. the beginning, and then the, I mean, just driving up on this huge... So, fantasy. yeah, I mean, basically the the plot is that uh, Darius, who, I don't, think we, I don't think we had a Darius-centric episode yet, um, get he wants to go pick up a free piano with multicolored keys from a someone he found on a biohacking forum <laughs> and he finds that the house is manned by Teddy Perkins, who is played by Donald Glover and just like Michael Jackson esque, like white face. <laughs> it, it, it was, uh, just, uh, inspired performance. Yeah. He, he apparently stayed in character while they were filming it. Um, God, that would be so creepy. <laughs> So how so Teddy Perkins is basically this man child who has a huge mansion and wears like a Hugh Hefner robe and it he looks like a step removed from like being a human. <laughs> yeah, he looks kind of like a ventriloquist dummy to me, but he we find out that the reason they're so wealthy is because his brother is this like a made up extremely successful musician who um they reveal he learned to play very well because their father was extremely abusive and like hit them if they weren't good enough at piano so it kind of explores like the ideas of like pop culture domestic abuse and uh get where they're at and and how they kind of end up like to the degree that we have someone like Michael Jackson who did turn him maybe 
turn his face into like a ghoulish apparition and uh it even shouts out a lot of it shouts out joe jackson and uh it even shouts out the dad who drops off emilio estevez in the breakfast club as an example of like good fathership yeah and i actually thought Darius, uh, towards the end of the episode, and this is Lakeith Stanfield, who actually was in Get Out. Right. Uh, he says, Darius says, not all great things come from great pain. Sometimes it's love. But your dad should have said sorry. I'm sorry. I went through daddy shit myself. And this sort of triggers Teddy... And I won't say, like, what exactly happens in the end, because I think it's totally worth being surprised for our listeners who haven't seen it. But I I think that says, uh, along the same lines of what you said before, that art uh, can sometimes, uh, doesn't have to emerge from just utter, like, pain and sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah, and you start to see how uh, the idea that you need pain to create anything of value permeates Teddy Perkins's like, worldview. And there's also some good symbol, some rich symbolism in there of the kind of the multicolored keys in the piano and also Stevie Wonder. They close with the Stevie Wonder song Evil and they open with a different Stevie Wonder song. And like you said, uh, he talks about how Stevie Wonder was able to see, you know, beauty in the world and love. And I kind of I was really interested in the multicolored keys on the black and white piano um, that Darius was trying to get. It wasn't ever explained, but it looked like it was just colored in by marker. And it sort of like reminded me of maybe like the younger Benny Hope trying to like avo- like uh, escape from a rigid world. And Teddy is just shedding the piano as and trying to get back to like the, you know, a more black and white view. And uh, definitely Stevie Wonder was is a gifted chromatic harmonica player chromatic coming from the greek for color um and stevie wonder despite his inability to see color definitely made like colorful chromatic music and had album titles like visions and i thought it was just a really like brilliant kind of tv horror um with a lot of kind of amazing symbolism that made me think and of course it was atlanta so it's fucking hilarious like they yeah they genius they use uh, scenes with Paperboy played by Brian Tyree Henry um, as a brilliantly placed like comic relief. They have a great riff on Sammy Sosa, and uh, it's a also a good vehicle for the character of Darius, who's been kind of built up as like compassionate and far out, but also very like confident and competent. Uh, I kind of feel like Darius gets up to adventures like this all the time that we didn't get to see previously in the show. Yes, I honestly was surprised to see him headline his own episode. It was very much, um, you know, he was very much like a supporting side character in the first season. And I felt felt Teddy Perkins was almost this, like, it definitely reminded me of, like, a man-seeking woman character. Like, have you seen that show where it's just (laughs) completely not tethered to reality? (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So, moving on from Atlanta, and that episode, again, is called Teddy Perkins, and even if you, like, don't even watch the show, it's worth watching, 100%. Um, Dennis Miller has joined Breitbart News from Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update to writing for the Nazi website. (laughs) (laughs) 
What are we to make of this? Like, a conservative comedian has no avenues these days, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Liberal-ass Hollywood. (laughs) If you look at this column in Breitbart... (laughs) (laughs) It's hurt. It's wounded. Take Trump down or pipe down. Start impeachment proceedings now. So he's basically saying, if you're... Oh my god, the, the like puns and like dumb references are just everywhere. As we begin to establish a firm yet flimsy foothold in the second year AD after Donald of the Mueller investigation doesn't hold Watergate. Oh my god, <laughs> I think he... we should take stock, stock in parentheses, and think of possible end games. Jesus Christ, where does Dennis Will- Miller where is what has happened to him i guess just uh like any other right wing i i, I mean it, like like adam carolla is making this documentary with dennis prager to fight safe spaces like tim allen is uh you know he he uh, is claiming that you know it's worse than nazi germany for conservatives in hollywood it seems yeah. that I don't know. It seems that there is dwindling opportunities for someone like Dennis Miller, but hey, at least at least he's not going the Owen Benjamin route, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess he probably uses the N word a, a, a bit less than uh, Owen Benjamin did, but either way we can maybe leave the washed up comedian corner behind and uh <laughs> you know that's a beat that i just love <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one <laughs> but another beat i love is classic films so we're talking about a fun one this week let's play some of a serious man please i need help had marital problems honey i think it's time that we start talking about a divorce larry we're gonna be fine (laughs) professional you name it larry we've received a number of letters denigrating you and uh, urging us not to grant you tenure i need help we're gonna be fine i've tried to be a serious man (laughs) we're gonna be fine tried to do right be a member of the community (laughs) we're gonna be fine just tell him I need help. Please. We're gonna be fine. I need help. We're gonna be fine. So this is one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. I connected with it so much on the level of like, it's very much about plain suburban life, but also just the Judaism is uh, just, I mean, the Coen brothers definitely borrowed from their Midwestern Jewish upbringing to make this story. So I don't know. What did you think watching it this time? Well, I watched it on Netflix, which uh, I guess it came back to Netflix or it came onto Netflix in February of this year. And uh, it's really just like, probably the second maybe to curb your enthusiasm it's like the most jewish thing i've seen in my life 
<laughs> it definitely, like you said, it talks a lot about their kind of what they, what the Coen brothers probably grew up like in, you know, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Do you agree with the perspective that many critics took at the time that it's a retelling of the Book of Job? I think it definitely, yeah. I'm not the biggest biblical scholar out there, but I have seen that interpretation go around quite a bit. But I I also was really interested. Do you you have a knowledge of the events of Book of Job? I know that it involves God and uh, what is it like? I I don't want to sound like an idiot about this, but isn't it like God and the devil sort of like throw uh, every temptation and like uh, hardship to try to break Job's faith? Right, yeah, and then kind of decide which, make him just choose which one, and then it would, you know, if he chose Satan, God would be mad or something. However it ends up in the Bible usually is probably how it ended up. I'm not good at this shit. (laughs) But let's talk about the plot a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen it. This is, I guess, the 1960s? Yeah, it is. Minnesota... Every house has this very distinct design. I, I, can't, I can't even place it. It just looks like, I, I, you can only call it like grandma's yellow house, like, you know? Post-war suburb, Levitt town, all those kinds of 60s stereotypes. Very few trees, kind of seem, seemingly endless prairie with these like idyllic little 60s houses. Definitely like remnants of like the 50s kind of conformity. But the 60s play a large role in this movie. But speaking of the fucking plot, you know, Larry Gopnik is the main character. He is a physics professor played by Michael Stuhlbarg. And he has issues with every aspect of his life. Literally his marriage, his job, his kids his religion <laughs> it just seems to become like a storm i mean i loved the running plot line of like thinking that seeing the rabbi is going to help and he can't get to the main rabbi so he has to see the other younger <laughs> rabbis and then one of them is played by that guy from the big bang theory who yes <laughs> and just... who just says his whole advice is to just look at the parking lot. It's great. It's, yes. it's beautiful. And then the second rabbi <laughs> like, tells the story about finding the word help me written in he or the words help me written in Hebrew on a, a Gentile's teeth. The guy, the Jew who came to the rabbi with the story was a dentist. And the story ends up just being nonsensical in the end. And it seems that every rabbi who he talks to just kind of gives a, well, life is life kind of answer. The family elements of this are hysterical. His son is just this huge, like, stoner. And he, this is, like, skipping towards the end of the movie, but, like, he gets super baked for his own bar mitzvah. (laughs) It's a classic scene. It's like one of the best yes. Coen Brothers scenes. And it's so great because in that scene, you're seeing it from his, like, dazed, like, I mean, the, the camera reflects uh, pretty well, I think, the uh, yeah. state of mind he's in. 
and his parents um are just like having just they're beaming they're like glowing it's like the first happiness yes. they've experienced uh together in so long but he's just like up there barely able to do his torah portion because he's so high so yes uh definitely this movie is a pulls a lot from black comedy it I saw an article about it from GQ talking about how it had been put on Netflix and it was claiming that it was the most underrated Cohen film. And I was wondering if you wanted to like engage with that a little bit, Dan, because you're a big Cohen brothers fan. I, I always find ter- claims of over of underrated. I, I frequently find them spurious. And I definitely see that with this movie, which I think was pretty universally acclaimed when it came out. Yeah, I feel like it didn't get the proper, like, cultural uh, weight that some other Coen Brothers films have. But in terms of their output in, like, the last 10, 15 years, I guess it's. 10 years old about now i think it was made in 2008 nine okay so i would say yeah it is the most underrated because in terms of how quality the script is i was shocked just at how fast the jokes and the script move like some of the times when richard kind who there's the connection to curb your enthusiasm cousin andy from curb yes uh he's like always like in the bathroom and then like like shouting i'll be out in a minute (laughs) yeah he's just like living off of his brother larry's like on his couch and the movie is just like it's so bizarre like larry is told in one of the first scenes by his wife that she's having this like and it's not even clarified whether it's a sexual affair or an emotional affair with yeah. this this bizarre J- Jewish like older man who was ostensibly the main character's friend, right? And is named Cy Abelman, and they just keep repeating. It's it's just one of those like Jewish names that's just <laughs> so funny. And Cy and Larry's wife, whose name I can't remember, just they have this obsession with like the three of them being cool with like the fact that she's leaving Larry for him. Yes. And, and of course, uh, Cy Abelman is played fantastically by Fred Melamed, who is funny in literally everything. And it doesn't end up well in this movie. It seems like sort of like you said that every decision is sort of made for the main character for Larry, but he it's his struggle to deal with all of this and interpret it through a Jewish sensibility, which we addressed, but also through a his interest in physics. And I thought it was so the, this also had very rich symbolism. The image of Schrodinger's cat really stuck and the uncertainty principle really stuck with me. Um, basically, Schrodinger's cat is the is a thought experiment that demonstrates that you that uh basically something can be alive or dead at the same at once per quantum theory and it what drives the outcome of the cat's life is the act of observation and 
with what he is frequently doing is trying to answer these questions and you hear him saying whenever he runs into a new situation like he has a south korean student that is trying to bribe him to get a better grade he's always defending himself and saying i didn't do anything but his own teachings show that the act of observation still drives the outcome and it even goes back to the beginning uh, scene of the story in which it takes place in like the old world in the shtetl from, you know, Dan and my ancestors or whatever. So there's this Jewish couple and an old man comes in and the, the woman and the man have a debate because the woman is convinced that he is a, a ghost and that because he has crossed... A dibuk. A dibuk. <laughs> and that he has crossed... Because he has crossed the threshold, they are now cursed. But in order to rectify this, she stabs the man and then the husband becomes convinced that she has ruined him because he, she has committed murder. Is it one or the other? We have no idea. Like, it, there's this kind of... there's Like you said before, the book of Job, choosing between the God and the devil, you frequently find him in a place of choosing one or the other or but he's unable to make the actual decision the act of observing the decision itself has already made it for him and i have this theory that i haven't read anywhere but that the dibic guy is the third rabbi that could be totally possible i also interpreted it as like that they had to leave the Jews had to leave like the shtetl because of that and therefore they emigrated to the united states and um like started his family it, you know i think it definitely it's it sets the tone for the entire movie oh my god in that dream sequence when richard kind gets shot in the head <laughs> and their neighbor who's like they keep referring to him the whole movie as like the goy neighbor yes. he's just this like hunter and he's just like shoots uh richard kind in the head in this dream sequence and he's like hey son we got another jew yeah no, there's amazing dream sequences in it, sort of like the Big Lebowski. This is a great fusion of a lot of Coen Brothers elements. Oh, can we please just mention the funniest one that you mentioned to me? When um, Cy is in <laughs> yeah. Larry's dream, yeah, slamming Cy his head. Is it like sits in on on Larry's physics lecture, and like when all the students leave, Sai just is grabbing Larry's hair and shoving his face into the fucking like chalkboard and screaming like, "I fucked your wife! I fucked your wife!" It's the best fucking scene. I just thought the scene where Sai is telling Larry that he has to move out of his own house. <laughs> Rather than his wife moving into Sai's house, that he like laughs at the idea that Larry would keep his own house, <laughs> and then he's like, "The Jolly Roger will be just fine," and it's like this dinky motel. Yeah, and definitely, what's funny is that um, there's so much that happens in this movie, but really, the only plot point, the only resolution we get is that. Is is in Larry's decision, and we won't spoil the ending, but his decision whether or not to pass Clive, the South Korean student from his class who failed his midterm, or not. Like, that's really the only decision he's he makes for himself in the whole movie. But the second he makes that decision, there is, like, another cosmic occurrence that uh, bodes a certain way for him. And I think it's like, it, it, it's one of the most fascinating 
movie endings I've ever seen. I really think it's a great movie about the '60s as well, in that it it's they keep quoting Jefferson Airplane when she said when Grace Lick says when the truth is found to be lies and all the joy within you dies. It's like this moment where the ground was like moving from beneath people and people were starting to just question everything and the search for clarity really only led to like further uncertainty. And uh, you see that when Marshak says the only advice he really has for the bar mitzvah boy is be a good boy. Like he doesn't, at the end of the day, nobody really knows. So a serious man underrated for sure and uh coen brothers classic uh i would say also for sure yeah i agree now story time this week is going to be about my painfully awkward removal from my first job out of college so i worked at this uh, street fight radio a uh, show we both really like uses this term spreadsheet farms as like a way to describe these jobs where you basically just like live in Excel and you don't really have to do much else. So my first job out of college is at this company and they essentially were like a client of some of the big cable companies. And I would essentially be like inputting metadata from the like studios into like your on-demand fucking like cable box Mm -hmm. so occasionally i would like you know shorten the descriptions (laughs) to meet a character limit and shit like that it was a uh you know the, the pay was like fine so that's kind of what drew me to it and uh you know sam we all we all take these first jobs out of college just kind of get on our feet and i think anyone anyone can relate to that i think very few people get out of undergrad and just walk into the the job they've always wanted yeah i mean i've talked about on this show how post-graduation i worked in food service and then the nra (laughs) nra temp yeah i was a food service professional though baby this job i was also a temp technically but i worked full time and the temp status of it was something I think a lot of employers do where they'll hire you as a contractor and kind of just keep you on but not give you any benefits. So I had that sort of situation going. I'd been there for over a year, and all of a sudden I got a uh, rejection when I tried to swipe my ID to get into the building. So I was like, huh, that's weird. So I went up into the elevator and got to my desk and made a call to the the uh, recruiting firm that placed me at this job. And I said, hey, uh, is there something wrong? Because my account's not signing in. And, you know, I didn't. And they're like, we'll check back. So I'm sitting there. <laughs> and my friends are asking me, like, is what's up I, you know you look uh, you look uh, disheveled or you look you know you look uh, you look like confused and I was like yeah I think uh, I think they fired me but forgot to tell me <laughs> but, so that is in fact what occurred I saw the whiteboard with all the fucking 
the programming temp's names on it and mine was removed. Nice. But no one told me. So I got a call at my desk from the agency saying, yeah, you know, they let you go because nothing to do with your work. It was just because uh, you seemed interested in other opportunities. Mm -hmm. But this is a temp job. (laughs) You are not giving me any (laughs) long-term options. I have to be looking at other opportunities. Oh, my goodness. So I was basically like dead man walking but didn't even know it got to look that boss in the face and say hey uh, it's been really nice working with you (laughs) like a little bitch (laughs) like the cockroach you are (laughs) yeah so it was it was one of the more bizarre experiences of my life but i will say losing that job uh helped me to get the job i have now in the field that I like, that probably if uh, I didn't do that, we might not even be doing this show right now. Wow. Because I wouldn't know how to fucking podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah, you bring that uh, that sharp skill set. But I'm glad that uh, you survived your ordeal with whatever that company, that faceless corporation was called. Well... Yeah, it's The Plunge. Follow me on Twitter at Spaventacular, S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. Follow The Plunge at Plunge underscore podcast. And Sam, where can they follow you? Follow me at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K on Twitter. And Sam, I hope you have a great time in the Mile High City, and uh, I'm sure that you will have a story or two when you return. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, I I mean, last time I was there, I met an Uber driver who said he just does it for fun. So I'm sure people there have some yarns to spin that I can then maybe uh, repeat over here. What if you, like, drove, instead of driving for uber for fun you just didn't use the app and you just hitchhike you know pick up hitchhikers <laughs> yeah it sounds very very safe but honestly maybe about as safe as picking up uber passengers well uh go pinch rudy giuliani's tits and uh you know go buy th- the books that Sean Spicer, Anthony Scaramucci, James Comey. Just give these men your money because they have earned it with showmanship. Yeah, if anyone's got any uh, James Comey scalpers tickets, I'm willing to pay upwards of like $500 for a single ticket because I'm a self-loathing fucking moron and I have nothing to look forward to in my life. So there's that. So let's end the show with the image in your head. I'm just going to you know, close your eyes. I'm just going to place this image in your head. It's Alex Jones making out with a woman in front of the Trump hotel while her baby stroller just rolls away. That's the sound he makes when he makes out. I'm in a deep state on your throat. 
as the baby just plunges into oncoming traffic. No, we don't want that. Well, goodbye. I used to love those fun